All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Monroe Live podcast. I'm Scott Hoffman. And today I have the distinct pleasure of hosting Mr. Ben Schaefer, who I believe is being is credited as the first person to bring a Tesla to the SEMA show, which makes you like a true founding <laughs> father of EV tuner culture. Is that I think that's an inaccurate statement, right? That's a that's an odd fact, but yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe more importantly, right, founder and president of Unplugged Performance, which specializes in some of that area. But either way, Ben, really excited to chat with you today. Thank you for making the time, sir. How are you? Yeah, it's an honor. I'm a big fan of Monroe and what you guys are doing, and it's always fun to talk to like-minded people who have the same passion that we have for stuff. So, looking forward to today's conversation. Things are great. Just got back in town from uh, our first uh, Tesla Corsa event on the East Coast in Atlanta, so I'm a little sunburned. But uh, <laughs> back in LA, I appreciate the weather in LA more than ever after being in Atlanta. It was tough out there. Absolutely. How were conditions at the track? Did you get some decent weather? Beautiful. Just just very hot, but but dry, which is good. So we had a fun time. Our race driver, Randy Popes, that's his hometown track. So we gave him the fast car and I think we got a, a new lap record, it seems like, out there. Uh, so yeah, it was a good time. Everyone had a good time. That's awesome. Yeah, I have some questions about Randy that we'll bring up here in a little bit, but uh, sure. super, super Randy fascinated to hear more about the racing as well. I know before I knew we were talking in, in long, I think before we even had this channel, I've I've watched unplugged videos for years, specifically the the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. I used to live out in Colorado. <laughs> I've made that drive oh, cool. and I've seen that in car footage and it, it terrifies yeah. me to my core. Randy is a brave fella, yeah, yeah. I'll say that. Terrifies me too after four <laughs> years out there. I've seen more than I wanted to see of it. And that's a scary drive even at 20 miles yeah, an hour. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the, oh, oh, more to come <laughs> on that, good stuff. But awesome, okay, so Ben, for those that are tuning in that may be unfamiliar with you or more specifically with Unplugged Performance, I was wondering, perhaps you could just kind of level set, explain what is Unplugged Performance? How did you guys get started and, and what do you guys do yeah. basically? I mean, we're car enthusiasts, first and foremost. Um, this is my 23rd year in the aftermarket uh, in 10 years now with Unplugged. Mm -hmm. And we had the, uh, I'd say, luck or good fortune of finding ourselves as uh, business park neighbors with Tesla's design studio with Franz and his team. Um, prior to that, we specialized in Japanese car tuning, and our background goes back. Uh, the first year in the business, I was involved in the first Fast and Furious movie, and then we were early stages of kind of time attack racing culture, a little bit of drift culture and Japanese cartooning culture. And we met a handful of like-minded car people at Tesla's design studio because of our crazy cars we'd have ripping up and down the street for, for testing purposes. Uh, so, you know, our background was Nissan GTRs primarily. And uh, in 2013, got a knock on the door from our neighbors, had some friendly conversations about what we thought about their work. I was thankfully already a shareholder in Tesla from 2012. Uh, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of our aftermarket work until having a conversation with them. And that changed my life. Uh, and I would say, you know, not to be too philosophical, but it really gave a meaning to, to my work because before that it was just about making things that went fast and look cool, mm -hmm. but to have some actual real purpose attached to it as far as the environment and as far as, you know, advocating for something that wasn't just cool, but something that was meaningful, uh, it makes events like Pikes Peak and a lot of the things that are really challenging mentally challenging financially and don't make a lot of business sense those things makes more sense in the context of shaping public perception around how fun it can be to drive an ev and that became really a lot of the mission that we have and we still hold true to that 10 years later with unplugged 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And I've heard a bit about this origin story. And, and to me, yeah, just I don't, how much of it was coincidence or the universe coming together? So you, so just to <laughs> clarify, so you had a company, Bulletproof Automotive, that, that specialized in Japanese tuning parts that were, so you guys were essentially repping brands and yeah. bringing stuff from other companies over. And that was set up, what, in Hawthorne, right? That was where you yeah, guys were. Yeah, so, yeah, actually, I ended up moving to California because I was an extra on the Fast and the Furious first movie okay. in 2000 while I was in college. And I decided to relocate to L.A. because I met people in the industry who were doing what I thought was just, like, a hobby. They were doing it for real, like, as a career. So I moved to L.A. and was, like, very deep in that world um for a long time uh and then yeah sort of transition from being uh a distributor you know i'd be in japan a lot finding the latest and greatest manufacturers of really high-end carbon fiber parts and aerodynamic parts and brakes and all the things we do now i just was back then focused on finding those great things and sourcing them and bridging that divide of language and culture and shipping and this is pre-smartphone pre-all this stuff uh and you know over time you know, as with anything, the deeper you get into it, the more creative freedom you want. And sure. I kind of went from someone who would choose the brands and buy the products and distribute the products to someone who was advising these brands of what products to make because we knew the market. And then over time, over time, it kind of became a scenario where it's their brand. It's not ours. I can't spend their money for them. Sure. So sometimes they'd listen to me and sometimes they would think I'm crazy. And over time, we wanted to have more involvement so we started getting involved uh building show cars for trade shows like sema okay. uh you know for a number of years i think from 2007 onward we were a featured builder for some tire brands like toyo and others uh and then we started building our own brands of parts for japanese cars kind of dabbling in that and gradually made the transition from uh distributor and custom car builder to manufacturer and that was not that was not because it was fun it's actually really hard to manufacture yeah i was gonna say that's uh, not a trivial jump to make um it's really, it, it's super hard now in hindsight, and maybe I was more confident year one, but I learned a lot of painful lessons along the way. Sure. But the bottom line was when we decided that EVs were the future, and we decided that car culture needs to survive in an EV era. And by the way, this is a given now, but in 2013, yeah, the theory was if you bought an EV, you weren't a car person, and yeah. also you couldn't modify it. And also it was like the death of all things fun for car people. Like that's like what they thought it was <laughs> Yeah. because they were just coming out of like the Prius era and like it was just like this responsible but not like core enthusiast thing. And we really needed to advocate for that because we knew that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, with the background of a distributor, if there's no products that exist to distribute, you've got to make your own. And that's kind of where we, we started as a manufacturer. And then fast forward, you know, we have to have the right you know expertise and design and engineering supply chain to cover the full spectrum of whatever you can do to a tesla from wheels yeah. to brakes to suspension to aerodynamics to carbon fiber parts interiors you name it yeah i thought i thought it was really neat too i, I think i read something where you had noted that really you guys have kind of i think at least one new area within tuning parts that you're responsible for cfd developed aero parts which you know historically people would use those to like get downforce and you know make sure they could hook up on the track but now you know you think about something that people suddenly care about range never mattered and it to you know ice tuners right and it's this this whole new era where like you said it didn't exist and you guys had to create these things that people were going to be interested in that is to me i don't know it's just phenomenally it's a different a fundamentally different thing to 
like rep brands versus like to make the content to pick what's going to be interesting, especially in a new space where, uh, you know, there's not a precedent. So kudos to you for taking that leap. That is, Thank you. and, and Thank just you. so Thank neat. You. So you were doing your thing with Bulletproof next door to Tesla. They got interested. They stopped by with one of their cars. And, you know, it's interesting when you know, like, I remember when we were first starting to tear down EVs and, and we tore down our first Tesla. I think the first one I personally was involved with some of the teardown on was a Model X. And it was maybe 2015, 2016. And I remember reviewing it with a client and having this sort of conversation around like, you know, when you look at the suspension choices, you look at like the materials, you look at the performance, what the vehicle can do. It's like, okay, from a, from a, from a dynamics perspective and the, the choices that they're making, this vehicle is more like a BMW or a Mercedes than it is to like an economy car. Um, and it, you know, for, for EVs or hybrids or whatever that, you know, some of those, if they had the, you know, the Prius mantra of being super conscious and also low cost. But I think in my perception way back when it was like, okay, now we're seeing EVs that are like, could, could really arguably be called a driver's car, right. Or a fun car to drive. I guess, um, you know, obviously, and then that starts to glove with what, with where you guys play, but I guess from your perspective, how, how important or influential was the fact that Teslas were like fun and cool cars to drive? What did that like do to accelerate? I guess just this adoption and it, it made it a natural fit for you, it would seem. But I guess that to me, it seemed like the first cool EV that was like a, could argue, you could argue it was a driver's car. I mean, was that your perception back in 2012, 2013 when you were kind of getting this off the ground? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that, we're good at and it's not a magical skill but we really are our own customer like we we know what we want and we don't need focus groups to know what needs to be done like we know what we're after sure. and that's made us fairly fearless and and uh in, in how we you know place our bets and sometimes those bets are very risky for example starting a manufacturing brand where there's no customer and no market is not a great business idea unless you're really committed to it long term and in 2013 we were making parts and no one thought that was a good idea besides us but yeah. over time i think you know it makes sense we're in the same scenario now where we're engineering for cybertruck and going into different categories there mm -hmm. we're engineering for police vehicles going in different categories there and i think the nature of the aftermarket at its highest level and we're we're kind of we're still aftermarket by general grouping we're a little bit more specialized in some ways but I think the nature of, of a third party, not, not a company like Tesla, is to take the ethos of what they're doing and to execute on things that are just slightly adjacent to what is economically viable or scales or is the core market. Sure. And uh, that opportunity exists for every car, uh, not just Tesla. Um, Tesla happens to, I think, uh, be a perfect match for us because they're so focused on efficiency and scale that the differentiation on a per model basis continues to become less and less. It used to have more paint options and more interior options. And now it's, you know, the, the latest car has no paint. Uh, so they really like dialed it down. They're to, like, they're, they're like doing the opposite precision. of Henry Ford. They're going back to the model T from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So it's great. I mean, it's great for us. And I think it's great for Tesla because um, obviously it's inefficient to have so many options sure. as a manufacturer, but it doesn't mean that there aren't so many use cases. Sure. There are doesn't mean that there aren't so many customer profiles there are and i think our point of view is strictly to be to be additive to the experience and to tell these stories that aren't being told whether it's motorsports or whether it's police or other things there are all these use cases where tesla as an engineering platform excels 
uh, and there will be more and more as time goes on with Cybertruck and, and future models. So, yeah, you know, you gave an example of utilizing CFD for efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, to me, common sense. Just no one had done it before. You know, it's a, it's the same process. You're just changing the target from downforce to to, to less drag ultimately. Um, and the beauty of the aftermarket is we get the cheap because the car manufacturers have homologation rules where they have to have things that they're worried about, like loading on the ferries and, and angles for the front bumper, which create lift. Sure. And the aftermarket, we don't care. We want to make the car that makes our customer happy. And thankfully, U.S. laws allow us to do things that don't have to go through all these pedestrian safety standards and all the things. Now, Germany with TV is a different story, but yeah, uh, we get to have a, a lot of creativity and that's super fun. Uh, we've never really defined it as we're a motorsports company or we're a streetcar company. Obviously, with the police stuff we're doing now and off-road related stuff, military stuff we're working on with Cybertruck and everything in between, um, we just look at it as Tesla has the best engineering in the world. What can we do differently that is just a little bit out of scope or focus for them or we can showcase this in a new light? Uh, and I think the aftermarket has a lot of freedom in that, which is great. No, it's fascinating. And, you know, I, it, it's been interesting to see, right, because we, with what we do, we end up working with a lot of different clients that some are established legacy brands, some are startups. And, you know, naturally in the space, everyone's kind of curious what Tesla is doing, what strategies they're using, how, how are they advantageous or not. And, you know, that has been one thing, sort of that more uh, Spartan design theme whether it's interior or exterior, there's not a whole lot of, of bling or flair on a lot of Teslas. And it's been interesting because we've seen and talked to clients about that and what that means for them in terms of savings and scale and simplicity, limiting complexity, limiting the number of variants, limiting the number of bomb items and things that you have to sequence and, and rack. And sure. all of that has a cost associated with it. It's fascinating that, you, you know, I hope I hope some of them listen to this from the standpoint that it's it's been neat to see that for those who would gripe about maybe that there aren't enough options with a Tesla, you know, in the free market, things find a way, right? So unplugged performance Absolutely. has come in to sort of augment what could be perceived as a negative, but maybe it's just Tesla saying, hey, we're going to be efficient at making sort of this this canvas with the engineering architecture that and really focus on that and getting that right and then allowing companies in the aftermarket such as yours to come in and and fill what could be perceived as that unmet need. That's a, uh, I, I wonder if you're, are you going to spin out companies to support that for other platforms? Maybe other companies should be looking at this and building their business plans around it. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in some respect, this is always in at, at its best, this is an ideal relationship between the aftermarket and the community and car manufacturers. In the case of the, the downside risk, though, is that the aftermarket doesn't have any standards. There's sure. great things and there's terrible things. Sure. And there's no gatekeeper as to allowing someone to make something terrible that's unsafe versus encouraging someone to make something that represents the DNA, the engineering, and the brand the way it's supposed to. Sure. And I think this were this is a big responsibility. And unfortunately, because there's zero standards, you get the benefits of creativity and the downside of consumer risk, safety risk, and brand risk for, for Tesla. Yeah. Uh, so it's not... It's not all one direction or the other. There's, there's some nuance to it. Uh, and ultimately, our point of view is we really want to operate at a level that Tesla is operating at, not an aftermarket level. So the types of things that we do as far as, you know, engineering, validation, product design, and just like purpose is important. I don't, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned flair and, and bling. 
there is a use case for that in the aftermarket. But our point of view is whatever we're doing should add to the functionality sure. and use case of the vehicle and not just be uh, a hey, look at me kind of product. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, well, you, you ultimately you have crossover. You know, the bottom line is like, you know, when you look at uh, a motorsports prep car, those things create downforce, but they also look cool. So whenever <laughs> yeah. you have an intersection of function and badassery, you want to be at that intersection. Yeah. Uh, but it's got to have function. That's sure. that's our ethos. And I and I and forgive me too, because I wasn't. I didn't mean that to trivial. I I think it's really really distinguishing and unique and and cool that you guys are focused on performance more so than style. That is a you know I guess when you talk tuning, there are certainly style mods that people do that are only aesthetic, but from what I can tell, that is not really what you guys are after, and it really is all about performance and function, I guess, hence why it's unplugged performance and not unplugged style. But, <laughs> it's in um, the name, yeah. <laughs> I think you described it as what? It was like taking the, the car and making it an 11 out of 10, making it better at the things that maybe they couldn't do for practicality reasons. That's that's a pretty Precisely. cool mission. I think I think our, our mission and what I would encourage everyone in the aftermarket to do whenever possible is to really deeply understand the DNA of what you're modifying and to make it more of that, to make it yeah. a more pure expression of what it is. Sometimes the aftermarket, in my opinion, at its worst, changes something and goes against the intention of the car to try to satisfy a trend or a style. Sure. Uh, our point of view is like really to try to get our brains in the in the the mental space of Tesla's design and engineering team. What were they originally conceptualizing? What do they really want it to be? And then every manufacturer has constraints, whether it's cost constraints, material constraints, scale constraints, whatever it is. Those are the things that we can, in some cases, lift. And it's not that we're smarter than them. We're frequently not as smart as them. Um, but we're able to do things at a different scale, different price point. So we have a different playbook, which in some cases we think makes our end product more exciting and better for certain fringe use cases just because we don't have to solve our products times a million units. Sure. You know, sure. so we have a lot more freedom ultimately. Sure. Sure. And this question, and if, if you can't speak in detail about this, totally fine. But I, I was curious, you know, obviously you're on Tesla's radar, right? Um, it seems as though there's a healthy relationship. I remember listening to like a, a Joe Rogan podcast and hearing Joe bring up yeah. your stuff with Elon. I, I mean, how was that for you hearing them talk about your guys' stuff? Uh, that had to be pretty neat. Uh, maybe pretty uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah. Joe, for whatever reason, thankfully loves us. And yeah. he brought us up a handful of times to different guests and likes to go through our website. And yeah. every time he does it, I'm grateful, but also a little bit uncomfortable because sure. – uh, you know, he puts his guests on the spot to give a reaction. Sure. And Tesla in particular, uh, for anyone who knows them well, is, you know, their messaging and their communication style is is very specific. Um, so you never know how those things go. Sure. Are you guys able, I guess that relationship though, if it, if it exists, I was curious, because of the neat things you guys are doing, I, I was curious did do you guys maintain like correspondence to the extent that there's like sharing of information or models to where obviously if you guys are doing fluid dynamics it would be really helpful to have a model of the car or some of the components are you guys having to scan all that in yourself and set up your own models or is there some sort of healthy relationship there where they're there because they know what you're doing and because you're i guess taking more forethought than some people might that there's a willingness to share there i don't know is that something is that does that exist or is that can that be talked about at all? Yeah, I can't really speak on Tesla's behalf. All I can say is we're pretty self-sufficient on our own. Got it. So we're okay. not dependent on on anyone to 
do anything for us. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah, and it's it's fascinating too, I guess, just circling back to, you know, you went in terms of the businesses, and I believe, so Bulletproof Automotive still exists, right? That's still a, I can yeah, still go and- it consumes, thankfully, like 0.001% of my time, okay. but there's a little bit of just legacy of my life there that I have not uh, fully separated. Um, but yeah, we have, we have a very good team uh, outside of our core office, so there's not really any cross-pollination internally. Got it. But uh, yeah, 23 years strong, still going. Um, and you know, as as an enthusiast and hobbyist, I'm not one of these extremes that's like, you know, has to be this or has to be that. I think car culture should exist in various forms. But I also million percent advocate for uh, the fun factor, usability, cost of ownership, all the benefits of driving an EV and driving a Tesla. And yeah. you know, to my to my point, I have a number of cars previously that I've kind of accumulated over my career that. Uh, I've been gradually selling because I don't drive them. I'm sure. like, I love driving my Tesla so much that in LA on the 405, like, it'd be hard pressed to pick a day where I'd want to be in anything besides a Tesla with full self driving. It's just so convenient. So uh, it feels in some ways like a past chapter of my life, but in other ways, the business continues on, and I'm grateful that it does. Sure, sure. And I, yeah, I, if, if, if you ever brought the two together, is there, I, and I know you, you've talked about not wanting to sort of uh, interfere with the spirit of the, of the vehicle that's it's intended. Is there any uh, tuner car platform, uh, JDM stuff that you've previously supported or loved that you think would be a candidate to like powertrain swap or put Tesla bits in? Has that ever crossed your mind? I, I'm a purist. Like okay. I want, I want the best outcome for the vehicle. I don't need to play by the same rule book and say it wasn't intended to be this, but it needs to make sense. Sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, for practicality purposes, the original Roadster was good for what it needed to be. But as a car purist, in some days I think, oh, the Lotus was better because the ethos of the car was lightweight sure. and Tesla made it heavy. But that was just a compromise that had to be made at the time. I'm very much a purist of like, what's the best outcome for the platform? And I think if you have a lightweight car, you should make it lighter. I think if you have whatever it is, it should be more of that. Um, obviously, there's business constraints around things, and the roaster is iconic, and I certainly wouldn't ever disparage it. It needed to happen that way. But in a perfect world, that would have been a ground-up platform designed for it rather than a retrofit of an existing platform. Sure. So when you talk about like Frankenstein and cars, I come from a background you know, where motor swaps are a common occurrence. Sure. Uh, so I think, I think it's great. People even swap previous cars. I think it's great for the environment. In almost every case, they're much faster. Um, it's not really a focus of, of ours, so to say. Uh, in terms of use cases, I was going to do one as a personal project. I bought a, uh, a 78 Lotus S1 Esprit. Oh, wow. Um, okay. That I thought was a good candidate. I think the best candidates for those are cars that uh, are beautiful cars with terrible engines. Um, and the S1 Esprit, I think, is a beautiful car, and the engine isn't that noteworthy. So... Uh, to me, that was a candidate that at some point I wanted to do, and then I kind of just got too busy, so I was just sitting rotting away. Okay. But um, I I like that car. I mean, you know, it was the, the Bond car. I think there's also yeah. some Tesla connection to it. And I was going to say, way, there's so. a full circle element yeah. there. I believe the Cybertruck has yeah. some inspiration from the Esprit, right? A lot of things of inspiration from that. So you ask, like, what's a good candidate car? I think the S1 Esprit is okay. a pretty badass candidate car, but it's not our business. A lot of companies do a really good job of that. Sure. What will sure. be really cool, though, is eventually when there's uh, controllers up for the Plaid uh, drivetrain, because that yeah. kind of Plaid power retrofitted into every kind of car, you're going to see some a lot of fun stuff come some out. Some silly whenever builds. That yeah. Happens. Yeah. That'll yeah. be cool to see. 
it's funny too because yeah and, and i realize yeah like tuning is different than like hot rodding and swapping engines and getting into that whole like because I've, I've dabbled a little bit too and yet like when you start taking an engine from one car and putting it into another like you're usually condemning this vehicle to be a project car forever and losing all your creature comforts <laughs> it becomes just like yep it can drive and yeah. it can stop yeah. but it it's not like something at least when i've been involved with it that you can like comfortably daily drive so it's got to be a hobby or it's just not going to make sense i'm, I'm well this you. is yeah this is the nature of just my evolution in the industry is i think when i was younger my mentality was a bit more like sledgehammer like i don't care about the downsides i'm just going to do crazy stuff and you know after some decades i've kind of realized that there are creative solutions where you can get the upside benefit you want and not lose the functionality and these are things that i think you know separate approach on the aftermarket and our, our goal is to think more deeply like a car manufacturer and less like aftermarket so when we for example uh this is not a super interesting example but for our Model 3 front lift spoiler, mm -hmm. our design objective was to reduce lift, create downforce, and not reduce ground clearance. And usually you have competing interests with sure. adding downforce, uh, also making it more efficient on the road, and also not reducing ground clearance from a uh, you know, entry angle, and also making it uh, out of uh, urethane so it has a little bit of give so it won't just shatter on impact. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that we, we thought about for one product um, just because we wanted it to be usable in every use case. And traditionally, what, the way the aftermarket works is you do one thing and makes it better, and that also makes something else worse. And whenever we can reach an outcome where it does everything better, uh, those are pretty magical places to be. So the win-win-win scenario. Some would say those are everywhere. like unicorn yeah. situations. If you can find them, that's awesome. Very More cool. often than not, they're there. It's just level of patience of trying to solve sure. for it. Yeah. Sure. No, that's fascinating. And it's, I'm curious, I keep going back to like that transition from being a distributor to like making these things. I mean, obviously you're a really smart guy. You're talking about the considerations that you have to make some of these parts, but you know, having worked with OEMs who are designing all the different systems and parts on a vehicle, like that takes an army of people and of expertise. What, what was that like as you were getting started? I guess like what type of a, what size and type of a team and disciplines did you have to bring in to start having the chops essentially to not just design these, but validate them and then, you know, tool manufacture. I, it, I'm just super fascinated to hear that about that transition and how you built that team. Um, a lot of stupidity. I think, <laughs> I think if we were smart, we wouldn't have done it. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think we, throw ourselves into dumb spots because we just want to see what we can do. Sure. And usually somehow we find our way out of them uh, and survive it. But uh, it was not a smart idea to have that level of confidence. But I also like, we don't really have a mentality of giving up. If you saw our example of when we totaled our Pikes Peak car, rebuilt it and got up to the top of the mountain two days later, this is kind of, this is kind of our ethos of like, we just don't know when to, when to quit. So we just <laughs> keep smashing our head into the wall until we break through the wall. It's kind of like, you know, we end up a little bloody, but we get through it. Sure. Um, so, you know, this is, this is kind of in our DNA. It's not a choice. It's just how we're wired. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, when we started initially, we obviously we couldn't have started with every category that we're in now in terms of product manufacturing. We sure, specialized sure. in the beginning on a couple of things. We had a wheel partner in BBS, um, and our focus was to manufacture in-house composites. So our background with uh, Japanese cartooning, we did a lot of suspension uh, and brakes, but 
one of the things we were very good at was carbon fiber work and we had the the know-how to to make it ourselves so when we started my my brilliant plan which ended up almost destroying the company was to do everything ourselves in in Hawthorne in LA um so we hired one guy uh, from aerospace from Seattle, he's working at Boeing. We hired another guy from Italy who was with Ferrari's Formula One team. Wow. And then we started from scratch, um, hand shaping parts, doing our own tooling and doing our own composites with vacuum infusion yeah. in our warehouse. Uh, and then we like had like a little makeshift paint booth and we're doing clear coating. And we basically made a bunch of parts for the Model S that was the only car at the time to really work on. Uh, so we had, you know, uh, in the beginning, uh, a front diffuser, side skirt three diffuser, and trunk spoiler that were, you know, a whole ecosystem made by hand in the back of our shop. Yeah. And we built that team to about 10 guys or so in terms of composites. And by the way, the entire origin of the business was that it was all self-funded from Bulletproof. So whatever Japanese cartooning stuff we did, every dollar went into So you were all product. in, yeah, leveraging it for So yeah, we were, we were all in. Unfortunately, that didn't work out well for my Tesla stock because I had to stop paying myself oh, no. a salary for about three years. So yeah. as Tesla stock went up, I gradually would sell some off to keep living because I couldn't get a paycheck out of the business. But this was just like 100% all-in bet on the future of Tesla and EVs. Um, but anyway, I, I learned along the way that manufacturing carbon fiber is attainable to be beautiful in-house, but is not attainable to be efficient and profitable in-house. And the efficiency of scaling it, we reached a point where we realized our logic was just flawed. I, sure. I kind of encountered a scenario where if we had our best case, our, our best case dreams and had, you know, an order of a thousand units, how could we make it? And the answer was we could never make it. There was just not enough space in Hawthorne at the right labor price point to make it without losing money every single product and having it take us years. And I realized I was a total idiot. So, um, you know, these lessons get learned. Uh, thankfully, we have amazing partners. Uh, Koenigsegg, that makes these fantastic hypercars, is one of the factories that we use for carbon fiber. We're okay. very proud of that because their factory only makes parts for their hypercars and for us. So we, we've become very good at, um, I guess, attracting like-minded friends in the industry and collaborating with really interesting people, which is fun for me. That's fascinating. I was going to say, because I there's a so there's a colleague here at Monroe that probably should be in on this podcast in the room. He's going to listen to this. Kevin's his name. Um, he, when the when the most recent generation of the Mustang had come out, wanted to start making carbon fiber components for it and sort of dabbled in that and made a custom hood, but had to find the people who could shape the clay and build the tools and do the vac infusion process and go through. And I remember him toting the tools around on his trailer and the different prototypes and trimming it and adjusting it and all those things. And it was, I just got a glimpse of it from him doing it, but it's, I remember how much consternation there was with that and how it's in some ways felt like more of an art than a science for some of that, getting, getting the geometry it's and the tool. a lot of both. Yeah. It's a lot of both. And I think, you know, many people have said it, but Elon for Tesla fans has most notably said that prototypes are easy and, and production is hard. Yeah. And uh, we were very good at making really beautiful, amazing carbon parts, but at no point in time were we ever good at producing it as a production business. It was always just, it always just felt like one-off racing parts. And in sure. fact, we did it again recently, our uh, Model 3 that we uh, crashed the Pikes Peak and rebuilt into a center seater uh, tube frame front end. The whole, whole one-piece front cowl was actually made in-house okay. by some of the same team that's still with us. So we, we still have that capability, but 
even in that case, we probably thought we were going to save a little money doing it ourselves. And I still, looking back, realized once again, we should just never make carbon parts on house ever again. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much of the mindset now where we will never do it. doesn't matter how much someone wants to pay us to do it. We will never, ever do it again because we can't ever seem to be on budget and on timeline. Sure. It. it just is not possible. I think that was the that was the conclusion my friend ran into as well. But that's fascinating <laughs> to hear about. And I'm glad you guys found the right partnerships and, and found a way to do it efficiently. That's super, super cool. I but did. yeah, I was curious about how that how that went specifically with those carbon fiber parts. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's fun. You know, you gotta it's, I have a hard time separating hobby from business. Sometimes I do a lot of stuff that doesn't make business sense but feels more like a hobby. And I don't really I still don't know where I land on that, but hopefully enough business sense to keep going for another 23 years. Sure, sure. So you kind of alluded to some of the the racing there, which I know is a, just a huge and fun topic that I definitely wanted to get into with you. I know you mentioned the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. I think before, before I knew who you were, before, I think, like I said, before we had a channel, it was the, the I remember watching videos of, I think it would have been Randy. This would have been probably back in 2020, just hurtling up Pikes Peak and you can hear like the air whooshing and the rocks pinging off the undercarriage yeah. and at every turn it just looks like he's about to blast off into blue sky horizon like a like a mm. rocket ship or something um just such a bad idea <laughs> yeah so tell me was that like I guess in terms of the different racing endeavors that you guys are involved in because I think there's been there's a lot of them right and maybe we can talk about yeah. that but Pikes Peak seems to hold maybe a special place was that kind of the first big one that you guys were in or where, where did that fall on the spectrum of dabbling and get sort of getting into the racing and to the extent that you guys have? Yeah. So the origins of racing, besides the fact that, you know, we always thought it was cool. And, and going back to the, the start of my, my now career, mm -hmm. I always liked it. And I actually, I started Bulletproof even before bringing over stuff from Japan. I was selling brake pads to guys at the racetrack because I just wanted to drive my car on track and I needed to cover the track day expenses. Yeah. So yeah. I would, Okay. You know, hand deliver brake pads to the guys at track, and that was even before I started bringing stuff in from Japan. Um, so you know, racing, I think, is it's fun because we all have a competitive spirit. Uh, it's fun because we all love our cars and want to, you know, advocate for how awesome they are. And what better way to benchmark how awesome the car is than to have a lap time that's really fast? Sure. So uh, I like the journey, um, but also I, I'm very mindful of, you know, how. Uh, brands and experiences and cultures are built and motorsports is a clue that holds a lot of things together. So when we started um, our mission of promoting Tesla as a car enthusiast brand, mm -hmm. the on-track experience was a very important part of that, having lived through and experienced through the building of Japanese car culture in the U.S. and what the importance of, you know, those track experiences to that community. Um, so very early on, we created a series called Tesla Corsa, which was and is still, I believe, the only Tesla track day event where there's only Teslas on track. Okay. We started the first one of that, I don't even know, six years ago. Okay. I uh, just finished one this weekend. We're probably at like 40 events now um, around the world, thankfully, wow. as well. And uh, uh, again, one of these scenarios where it's, it's a terrible business idea. Every event we lose money. So people ask how many we're going to do. And I'm like, I'm not sure I want to optimize money do I for failure. Lose? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we do enough. Uh, but uh, uh, I think those are really important things to do because ultimately uh, Tesla makes amazing cars and you really can't appreciate how great a car is uh, on the street. Or if you, if you do, you're arguably, you know, 
uh, a little bit unethical because you're endangering somebody in that scenario. Sure. sure. Uh, the racetrack is is a is a really good venue to be able to experience uh, car ownership. Uh, and people have different misconceptions of what that means. Obviously, Pikes Peak is the extreme version where it's the most competitive, the most dangerous, the most irresponsible version of racing. Um, whereas Tesla Corsa, I have people, you know. Uh, this last event in Atlanta, a, a couple drove down from Boston, multi-day trip to go out there on track. Um, I believe their cars were totally stock. I think they want, I want to say they're probably 60 or 70 years old. They are not your profile of a race car. No, driver. not at all. Yeah. But, but they love the hell out of their Tesla and it's fun to hang out with Tesla owners and drive fast and not have cops chasing you. Yeah. So um, it's one of those things where I think it's important to have that structure and that experience to appreciate the vehicles that people own and to do it in a safe way. So we do, you know, instruction for beginners, driver coaching, um, the whole end to end thing. Um, and, you know, from a business standpoint, we justify it saying there's a little bit of marketing in there because people, people eventually will want to go faster and there's a limitation to what the factory components from Tesla can do. So sure. if they want to buy our stuff, cool. If they want to buy someone else's stuff. That's cool too. Um, so, Anyway, there's all levels of racing. We're involved in wheel to wheel racing. We've run one multiple years in a row in Japan, wheel to wheel racing in the Model 3. Uh, surprisingly enough, uh, beating a Porsche Taycan Turbo S in the Model 3 wheel to wheel wow. racing is, a, is an unusual win. People would assume that Porsche is much faster. Um, in this case, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, you that know, one we, had to feel good. Have a, yeah, I was, I mean, we were nervous when we saw that competitor enter because I'm like, well, I don't know. This is going to be a bigger challenge for us. Sure. Uh, but it worked out well. Um, we have a location at the Nürburgring, and we own a car out there that's on track multiple times a week. Uh, and that helps us a lot more for product development and validation. Okay. Sure, um, sure. The Nürburgring is a very difficult facility to publish lap times. They're very restrictive of what you can say. Sure. Um, so we don't really think of that venue as a place to have definable results. We think of it as a good place to learn, test stuff, break stuff, iterate, make better things and we've had a lot of good products that have come out of that experience sure um and yeah i think overall motorsports sharpens the blade um in terms of engineering in terms of uh building community uh and also what's the point of doing all this awesome stuff in terms of product if you can't prove that it works so we sure. want to have lap records you know our our 4900 pound model s family sedan with stock power stock battery stock firmware beat 56 out of 66 cars at Pikes Peak that were all race cars. There was not a car in our competition that was probably within 2,000 pounds weight of us. Uh, and you look at that platform and you think there's no way we're going to be that fast. Uh, and these are fun things. Like I, I come at all of this with the underdog mentality. Yeah. Like I feel like we have something to prove because that's where we came from. That's where Tesla came from. And I'm still not really caught up to speed with Tesla being, you know, the most valued car manufacturer and being mainstream. In my mind, this is still a fight we're fighting to prove that, that this should be in conversation. So, uh, we always come from, from, you know, a bit of a chip on our shoulder to, to, to prove that, that this is what we're advocating for should be taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, setting lap records certainly gets you guys some serious street cred. So I, I, that's I, objectively <laughs> probably the best way to, to go about it. And it, you know, it is fascinating to you, you know, like just the, you know, there's obviously the cars like Pike's Peak. I was, I was watching the, the dark helmet run and it with the, the 
the stuff you were referencing here just recently. And, and yes, there's a lot on that car that's modified, but maybe what's equally impressive, as you alluded to, is the stuff on it that's not modified, right? Um, the battery, the cooling specifically, some of the software. I mean, there's elements of that car. It's just wild when you think about, you know, friends who've spent tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars to try and build track cars to go fast in a straight line. And that like everyone I know who's ever built a car probably can't hold a candle to a bone stock uh, Model X that you could go get, you know, haul your kids around and, and move a bunch of groceries in too. It's, it's, it's kind of, I remember when, when the first time I sat in a Tesla and gave it the beans, it was like, whoa, this is something pretty different. Uh, it just sort of, it, it changes what you think you know about how vehicles move and how throttles respond. And it, it was just, it is for, for people, I guess, and this is not specific necessarily just to Tesla. There's a lot of high performing EVs out there and certainly more are coming and it's exciting to see more come. But for anyone who's for whatever reason, dogmatically opposed to EVs, I'm always like, if they're a car person, it's like, just get in and drive just one. Just drive one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that's, all you, that's all you need. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was, I, I didn't share this earlier. I should have. When you were asking about how we decided to go all in on Tesla, uh, you know, I, I, had a, I had a meeting with our neighbors that came by. And then very shortly after, um, without even test driving, I bought a, a P85 Plus. Okay. And I think it was within probably a day of driving it that I came in the office and said, everything we're doing going forward is we're betting on this 100%. This is the future. I'm sure of it. And it was really nothing more than just driving at one time. Yeah. Realizing you know, the whole world I was in before was how do you make a car more responsive, whether it's shifting speed or whether it's, you know, torque curve yeah. or something else. And, and then you, know, you just go straight the, the, to instant. The, the brain is hardwired <laughs> to the car. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I had just come out of, I think probably a day or so earlier prior to that, driving a thousand plus horsepower R35 GTR Nissan. And the road behavior of that car, if you want to do something, is going to drop down a couple gears, build up RPM, build up boost, and then go. And, it was very clear to me that for enjoyment and use case, the instantaneous connection of car and driver with EV was, it was game over. It, it wasn't like a maybe, it was a definite, and it was just a little bit of like, oh, like a little, little, a little bit of fear that like everything I was doing prior to that was wasting my life for a dead <laughs> industry. And a lot of like excitement of like, how do I prove what I've learned to be true to other people and like, make this thing as cool as I can make it. Sure. And, you know, that was also part of the origin story. But as you're saying, like, it's not hard to understand that when you, when you drive one. Yeah, for sure. Now, would that have been the first EV that you had driven or? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And so you just went straight. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty neat. I remember. It was just so obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a guy years back when we were first starting to look at Tesla stuff and this guy drove a Nissan leaf and was like really proud to drive an ev and it was like would have considered himself an early adopter and i remember it was like we were talking about some of the differences between the two cars and he was getting a little offended i'm like man it's this is <laughs> this is a different animal man like i i, I no disrespect to the leaf and obviously that was i yeah. think it was the first one of the i mean obviously one of the first mass market evs but i think it was the first to sell a million units the first Bev, I'll have to double check on that. But I quite it, frankly didn't care at all about any of this stuff because it wasn't, it didn't ring to me as an enthusiast car. Yeah. So I never, I, 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 I bought Tesla shares because I believed in what Elon was doing and I thought the company ethos was good, but I didn't think it applied to me as a car enthusiast sure. until I drove one. Uh, and I think arguably that Model S 85 Plus and the Roadster before it were really 
the only real true enthusiast EVs that existed. So if I did drive something before, I may have been, who knows, maybe negatively yeah. biased against it. I don't know. Sure, I was a blank sure. slate, and then it was just super obvious that it was the right thing. Yeah. I remember the first time I was in one and had a chance to get behind the wheel. It's a good friend of mine. Um, he, a lot, I went to a school in Michigan and went to Kettering University. It's like a lot of automotive mechanical was my background. So like all my friends are in Metro Detroit and work in automotive. So someone, they, this, this friend was at a supplier and had it as like a car that they were doing some development stuff on. And it was a Model S and he, he probably shouldn't have let me, but he did let me uh, hop behind the wheel. He's like, hey, I have this Tesla. This was probably 2013 or 14. He's like, come try it out. And it was it was pretty wild. I remember that specifically. Do you still have that first that first Tesla that you got? Is that in a garage somewhere or did that one? We had it for a long time. We ended up finally selling it about three years ago. Okay. Um, but that was the, the P85 Plus is a great car. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, one other uh, adjacent fact here, our, our, one of our core drivers, Randy, Randy Popes, has driven like literally every car on the planet. He's, you know, he's worked for Motor Trend for a lot of his career and yeah. most of the lap records he's driven. Um, he didn't really have a ton of experience with Tesla when we met him, although okay. he was. One interesting experience he did have was Tesla at one point uh, tapped him to help get feedback to develop the initial track mode mm, at Willow Springs. Okay. But other than that, uh, I managed to convince him to come out to one of our Tesla Corsa events, get behind the wheel of some cars, and then we kind of built this relationship. And uh, what's interesting about this is about six months ago, he bought an old Model S as the daily driver. So uh, I'd say that's kind of an interesting uh, vote of confidence yeah. and also a little bit of, a, of these race experiences rubbing off where he started to think, oh, I better I better drive one of these a little bit more because I like it. Sure. So he's got, I think, a 2013 or so Model S. And he's having a good time with that. Every Very day. cool. In terms of, yeah, and, and obviously that connection with Randy's been super cool. He's he's quite a character. I've enjoyed watching some of the videos, the explanation. The yeah. I really like the in-car narrative when he's like narrating his <laughs> own path up up the, the peak. Well, That's pretty neat. But, yeah, we uh, love that. So uh, I, I imagine he's been a big part of some of your, like the most proud racing accomplishments. I guess for Unplugged, what are some of the other like big notable uh things that you're proud of as a company or as, as your products have achieved? What big ones stick out to you? Uh, it's, we're all over. We've done a lot of stuff that sure. has been great over the years. Uh, and it's hard to summarize. Uh, <laughs> is I there think, a favorite memory or two that stick out in your mind? I think Pike's Peak is memorable for the pains and the successes. You know, we, we set the record for the fastest uh, production-based EV ever uh, this year, which is great. Um, Two years prior to that, we we won our, our division against a bunch of cars that people probably thought we couldn't beat. Sure, um, those those are great, um, but I think equally great are just you know um, whenever we do have public facing collaborations with Tesla, it's fun. We were involved in a Tesla Veterans Model S, and this was years ago, but we had made this uh, front fascia to kind of refresh the old Model S, and we were just really honored that Tesla would choose our parts to update their own Model S for Tesla vets and to help have community outreach there. Uh, I, I love Tesla, so whatever whatever stories we have in public with Tesla are enjoyable because the relationships just so meaningful to me. We had a race car in the in the factory in Fremont with our documentary airing for about three or four months, and that was cool. But what was more cool was seeing the employees there taking selfies, sitting inside the car, like loving it because I could feel like we're adding back to the people who inspire us. I like sure. this kind of full circle of we get inspired by Tesla. Whenever I feel like we're passing the inspiration back to them. It just gives me just really good vibes that like 
the work is, is meaningful. Sure. Um, so I like all that stuff. You know, we had our car, our race car and Tesla showroom in Colorado and did some interviewing out there. That was fun to talk to Tesla staff and Tesla customers and showcase, you know, our car was right next to a stock model S plaid and just illustrating that the DNA of the cars are almost identical. Yeah. And the only difference between a race car that sets lap records and a car that, you know, they're, they're buying every day is for the most part, just bolt on parts. Yeah. You know, our, our brakes, our suspension, the things that we add are the same stuff that are on our website that we ship around the world. So anyone can pretty much without even modifying power or changing anything on the car can basically make their own race car pretty easily. Uh, I like sharing those comparisons because people think we're like so far removed from the stock car because it looks crazy, but it's all our catalog stuff. It's all bolt on. Well, and that, and that to like, yeah, I guess the, the uninitiated or untrained observer, like that's what maybe is most crazy is, you know, you think about for someone to like achieve similar results at Pike's Peak, you know, to do it in a nice car, what they would have had to do to build that powertrain to get to what it could do. Like it just, it, it'd be, it, you should see the cars we're racing again. Yeah. It's right. Like, it's, it's hilarious seeing them side by side. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your point is very well taken. <laughs> if you actually visualize who we're racing against, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, well, thank you for, I mean, it's, I, I've had a, grown a strange love for Volkswagens over the years. And it like, it, there's this saying that's like Volkswagen turning everyday people into mechanics since 1918. Maybe <laughs> you guys are turning everyday people into race car drivers since 2013. Maybe that should be the unplugged mantra, but it's neat. That'd be, that it that'd be seems, a nice outcome. I like that. Yeah, yeah. there you go. But it, it is, it's, I think one could make a strong argument that, you know, with the example that you pointed out too of a, you know, a couple coming down to a track day just because they love their car and want to, want to do something with it safely. Like, I think it's probably, you could make a strong argument that Tesla in combination with some of what you guys are doing to augment them and extract more out of them has made racing and motorsports more accessible to people who might've likely otherwise had zero interest or ability to get into it. And that's, that's pretty neat. Exactly. Yeah. One of the other kind of cool things, uh, just top of mind because I just came back from Atlanta. Uh, there's a private racetrack out there called Atlanta Motorsports Park. And one of our initiatives is we built for the racetrack a fully track-tuned Model 3. And the reason we did that in collaboration with the track owner is that the car we built puts down the same lap times as a new Porsche 911 GT3 and is lower cost to maintain, lower cost to get in. And I think it's really important to showcase that and to get it in front of buyers who are not expecting it for one, but also can see an opportunity to have uh, more of a, of a multi-use vehicle. You know, we're comparing against, you know, the fastest Porsche vehicles that, you know, barely have any storage or any usability or amenities with the car that's got, you know, four doors, two trunks, autopilot, all this cool stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, I love storytelling and creating content in ways that people just don't expect. Sure. And there's still a lot of opportunities for that. And I think Cybertruck is a, big opportunity coming i think the stuff we're doing with police fleets is a gigantic opportunity that gives me an entirely new mission which is sure. you know not only not only helping the environment but, but saving taxpayer money because um you know just one one very basic fact which still blows my mind is that any police car that's not an ev is spending about 60 percent of its time idling and putting yeah. emissions out there just just to basically support the electronics on the vehicle and to keep the the cabin cool enough where it's usable. Yeah. Um, so we're just lighting taxpayer money on fire, sixty percent of every day, every every police car you see, and that to me just isn't right. Yeah. Uh, so there's so many great opportunities to do new things, and I've never felt like more excited just to 
you know, advocate what the advantages of EVs are. Uh, our point of view is very heavily Tesla biased, but I'd argue the same opportunity exists for every car manufacturer to, sure. to, to really take EVs and, and push the limits. Sure. Yeah. And if we want to touch on that just briefly, I know you, so you guys have been like the, in the upfitter for at least one fleet of police cars, right? Is that, or, or maybe it's more, I guess, maybe, maybe you want to expound on that a little bit. So you guys have recently gotten into, I guess, outfitting Teslas for police applications then? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we got in the news a couple of months ago for um, the world's first 100% police fleet EV changeover all in one go. Okay. Prior to that, there's been like little dabbling then of, you know, a, a fleet, one here, one there, but okay. it's a big leap of faith to replace an entire gasoline uh, fleet with EVs. Uh, and we were involved in that, everything from the sales process, like going to city hall meetings and like, oh, wow. you know, advocating to get funding and like overcoming, you know, the fear, uncertainty and doubt of people in charge who were asking questions about, you know, what happens if Russia hacks your whole fleet and like cars are like turned into whatever, like there's so many, there's so many fear factor things that like we have to overcome. So we've, we learned a lot on the sales side, um, on the procurement side with Tesla, on the engineering side with understanding the use case challenges. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we ended up, I think hitting a sweet spot of, you know, approaching this the same way that we approached everything else, which is holistically, how do we make the best usability, reliability, use case scenario for a Tesla and police fleet? And more importantly, how do we do that and have results so the next time it's sold, it's not so scary of a decision to make that choice? Sure. Because economically, by any standard, it saves a lot of money sure. over, over the duration of the car. Like, that's pretty easy to understand. But there's still always going to be some fear about whatever excuse they want to have, sure, whether it's sure. charging infrastructure concerns or, you know, the crazy comments you see online of, oh, in a police chase, what happens when a Tesla just runs out of battery and the criminal gets away or those, those 300 all, all plus the, all, mile all chases. Nonsense. Yeah. 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 I mean, like I know it's, it's nonsense, but we have to just like, you know, lead by example and show sure. that this is real and it works. And then it goes from the same idea back in 2013, you know, advocating that, Driving a Tesla can be fun and enjoyable for someone who didn't give it a shot. Now we got to do the same thing, you know, uh, having police fleets with Teslas. People have reasons to believe that's not true uh, or not good. Uh, I know for a fact it is. So we got to just do it, prove it, and then that becomes the new standard. Awesome. So that fleet, how many vehicles then did you guys equip it with? So we're, we just announced the deal, I don't even know, three, four months ago. We're in the middle of it. Uh, that's a smaller fleet. It's 20 cars. Okay, still, um, that's a good chunk of cars. It, uh, it takes a lot more engineering than I expected okay. to get it dialed in. Uh, much like the aftermarket, how I was saying the pros and cons are that there's no standards. Anyone could do anything. Uh, police fleet upfitting, there's not really any standards. Anyone can do pretty much anything. Okay. So there's, uh, I think, a lot of opportunities to uh, make the vehicles more reliable, uh, safer for officers from a ballistic standpoint working on ballistic protection options oh, wow, also cool. from a, also from like a electrical standpoint you know where our engineering right now ranges from ballistic stuff to harnesses and electronics to lighting components to uh uh everything in between um uh, push bars pit maneuver type stuff everything in between we're kind of re-envisioning what we think a right a good solution is um and yeah, one of the fun things about being a manufacturer is you can make anything better. Sure. Um, you know, there's no rules. Uh, as long as you can find an opportunity to make something better, you can do it. So 
uh, my mind has been uh, lately ballistic door protection because ballistic doors are laughably bad right now. Yeah, uh, people just weld we, in thick steel plates historically, right? Well, yeah, you look at a Tesla, we, we, we installed one. Uh, it adds so much weight that when you close the door, the car shakes for like 20 seconds. Uh, you know, in officer use cases, they're usually not on flat ground. So if they're ducking behind that door on a hill, that thing's crushing them because it's really heavy. Uh, and also the Tesla doors, the windows are frameless. And I guarantee you that door sacks yeah. uh, over time and sure. that window starts contacting and things break. Uh, anyway, as, as an example of how aftermarket should work, and I think it does work in most cases, you can identify opportunities everywhere, whether sure. it's a brake pad compound, whether it's a ballistic door, whether it's aerodynamic opportunities. Uh, everything's fair game in our world, and that's fun. Sure. Now, on the topic of new use cases, I know I'm, I'm curious. So we talked a bit about racing, I, and I know obviously on your guys' site there's a section for Cybertruck. It's a different vehicle than other vehicles they've had out. Are we going to see like a unplugged performance Cybertruck at the Dakar Rally or something in the near future? Are there what sort of racing applications might you guys be considering for Cybertruck? Uh, I'd love to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, sky's the limit with Cybertruck. There's so much that can be done. Our initial focus is rethinking the Cybertruck the same way that we rethink any vehicle, which is starting foundationally with the DNA of it and making it more of that. So. DNA of Cybertruck is not a it's not a race truck. So our initial focus is not about racing, although the platform will be very capable for racing, and we'll have a lot of crossover on the stuff we're doing with motorsports. Because uh, ultimately, anything that is more uh, ruggedized, more adjustable, you know, uh, specialized for different use cases, will transfer into racing anyways. But our general ethos for Cybertruck is, you know, if you had to be in one vehicle you know, in an apocalypse or like end of the world or Mars or somewhere else, like this is like the most badass, indestructible thing you'd want to be in. Sure. And it ends up being just like a Swiss Army knife of you can do anything and you can do it in the most ruggedized way possible. So our ethos is more of that, please. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to do more of that. Super neat. Well, I know, I'm sure you guys will acquire your own and rapidly disassemble them to figure everything out. That's our same thing, too. I can promise you as soon as we can get our hands on a Cybertruck, we'll be tearing it apart and putting it on the channel and everything. So if there's ever anything we can do in terms of giving you an advanced look, I'm sure you're probably like, I think I have a reservation in for a Cybertruck. I'm like 17,000th in line or something, so not very <laughs> early, but uh, hopefully. Everyone's pretty eager. Yeah. I think it'll be worth the wait, though. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, hey, man, this has been super fun. I think we're probably, I want to be respectful of your time and make sure we kind of don't run on for, for forever here. But uh, maybe we could end with one last uh, kind of big question or, or thought. I guess there are some people, and you alluded to it earlier, I, I've, I've heard people say that EVs are like the, the death of car culture. They're going to steal the spirit of, of cars as we've known them. And I would imagine that that comment uh, you have a different opinion there. I guess if someone if someone came up to you and, and said that, they said that, you know, EVs aren't good for car culture, what would your message to them be? Yeah, yeah that was that was the driving focus when we started. Uh, it was very simply, we drove the car, we knew it was the future, and the question was, is this the death of car culture or the beginning of a new chapter? Mm -hmm. And every action we've done for the past 10 years has been to show that it's the beginning of a new chapter. And I think... What we've seen is quite the opposite, which is that most most standards people judge car culture. It's hard to be competitive if you're not an EV. Um, you know, the we have in, in multiple cases with our Model S, 
the overall uh, lap record of any car. We're not competing against EVs. We're competing against everything. Sure. Um, so I think from an enthusiast standpoint, uh, we're reaching a point where the fastest cars, definably fastest cars, have to be EV or at least hybrid. But in, in the future, 100% EV, not, not hybrid. Um, I think from a community standpoint, we see these car shows, gatherings are getting bigger and bigger. People are enjoying different ways to customize their cars. And uh, there's more of a duality of use. It used to be that if you modified a car, you made it worse of a daily driver, and then you had to get a second daily driver to have your modified car in the garage for the weekends. Sure. Tesla as a platform doesn't piss off your neighbors during cold starts in the mornings on the weekends. <laughs> uh, you know, it's you can enjoy your audio system because it's not making a bunch of noise all the time. You know, for normal uh, gasoline powered cars, not normal, but for ice cars. You'd have, you know, uh, valve exhaust systems where you can kind of have a little bit of peace and quiet, but not too much. Tesla is just good at everything. Uh, so there's not really a downside. The only, the only argument that can be made uh, is there will be some nostalgia for analog. And I think that's totally okay. I think ultimately, you know, uh, uh, a lot of car enthusiasts' future garages will be a Tesla for every day. And an old lightweight analog car that has no electronics just to counterbalance that for weekends. Because driving a Tesla, if anything, it makes you appreciate imperfect, inefficient things because the Tesla is so efficient and so perfect that you almost sometimes want to experience the noise and the rattle and like the long throw shifts and all the quirks and clutches and all yeah. these things just because that's also an experience. But, you know, that's horseback riding, right? Like this is yeah. where we're at is, you know, we've, we've made a, a cultural leap. Yeah, I know. And I was like, yeah, the, for the same reason people have record players or any other old nostalgic thing will blow the dust off the stick shift and, uh, you know, show your kids how to drive it someday. It'll be the, the relic. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally respect that. But I think anyone who loves cars and loves driving every day, if they haven't already realized that driving an EV checks so many more boxes than they thought was possible. I think those days are coming for, for everyone. And it's not it's not like a you have to. It's a you'll you'll want to once sure. you realize how good it is sure excellent well i think that's a perfect note to wrap up on here but ben this has been <laughs> super informative super fun you're an awesome guy to talk to and you're awesome for making the time to be on here thank you so much uh, thank you it's any really last an honor thoughts and pleasure come to la let's grab a beer sometime i love these conversations absolutely man and the fun. offer stands if you're ever in metro detroit stop by we've got all kinds of things torn down would love to hang out with you <laughs> sounds good awesome ben appreciate it